Scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and in the book, uh, in the hymnal, uh, in the pew, it's going to be pages 925 to 926, and I promise you that it'll cover both pages, 925 and 926. Daniel, chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, then what God 
will be able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So about 600 years before Jesus was born, a guy named Daniel and his friends were torn from their home by an invading army, <clears throat> carried off to a foreign land with foreign gods, and foreign language, and everything foreign, and were placed in a school to learn to be basically administrators and advisors and that kind of thing in the Babylonian government, the greatest empire 
the world had seen to that time, that part of the world anyway. And we've been looking at this remarkable story of theirs, and it's not just the story of how a guy named Daniel rose to great prominence and power, and also his friends were elevated alongside him, but it's more, the reason this story has lasted so long, whereas other successful people's stories have faded, is because of these people's unique faithfulness in an unfaithful land. Uh, their faithfulness to God in a culture that did not acknowledge their God, their willingness to stand up in a bow-down world, to pursue purity in a corrupt culture. Last week we looked at the importance of maintaining an eternal perspective on current events and how God was even working in the midst of this difficult time in their lives where they were in exile and how God even revealed himself to a pagan king and used that pagan king for his own purposes and that God is bigger than uh, anything going on in our world today and that he's playing the game behind the game that there are powers behind the powers of this world and, uh, and we would do well as servants of the king to remember that and to trust in God that he has a plan and to keep a, a broader more eternal perspective on the news headlines that we see and so forth we touched on that last week, and this week we launch into uh, lions and idols and fire, oh my. I've been having fun, probably too much fun, with these uh, sermon titles. We had the veggie plate in the steakhouse <laughs> the first week, and I don't know, This is I figured I'm just going to let my dad joke sense of humor uh, out in this series, so I apologize. When I was a worship pastor in Springfield, Missouri, I, uh, we were going to introduce a song to our church that began with the words, May my prayers like incense rise before you, which is a scriptural, it's taken right out of scripture. And we were going to do this song, and I thought, well, it would be neat as we teach this song to the congregation to have some incense burning, you know, just like they used to do in the temple and that kind of thing, um, and, and just kind of have a visual and, and a smell as well of, of what that's like, of a pleasant aroma rising up to the throne room of heaven, which is the imagery of scripture. And so I started looking around for where I could buy incense, and there weren't many places that were selling it. I'm sure you're shocked. Uh, <clears throat> so I started looking, I started calling people. I thought, well, first I tried to you know, check like Christian sources, you know, and I checked like the Catholic bookstore and that kind of thing, and they had some. But it was really expensive and a ton of it. And I just didn't need that much incense. Uh, so finally they said, well, you might check this store. I think it was called Renaissance or something like that. And I said, okay. So I went to this store. It was my first time and last time. Uh, and I, I noticed a sign as I walked in that they, they had a medium. That should have been my cue, right, to probably just go somewhere else. But I walked in. And in this storm, they had shelves lined with little idols, like pagan idols. Like, it was like stepping back 2,000 years in time to a world where people worshipped these pagan images and they would put these idols in their homes and they would put them in their temples and they would pretend that they were gods and they would worship them. And it was really kind of creepy. <laughs> and to add to the fact that right next to the aisle with the incense was a little, it's like 
partitioned off area where some medium was speaking with someone else about something, I don't know. I grabbed some frankincense, which sounded biblical, and headed out. And I used my own credit card instead of the church's, because it just seemed like if something was going to get possessed, it should be my card, not the church's card. <laughs> we, we laugh at such things. I mean, it sounds crazy to us, these pagan cultures and all, and... Uh, at the same time, we acknowledge that people still worship idols today, just not in the form. They don't usually put it in a, in a form that you can look at or sit on your shelf or sit in a temple. Uh, and yet people still worship the same kinds of things that people worshiped back then. It's just a little bit harder for us to identify what those are because they're not in stone or metal. They are a little more subtle, we could say. And so sometimes we have an, a hard time acknowledging while we know that they exist and that people worship things and money and success and power and all these different things still today, uh, we have a harder time seeing it. And that also means that we have a harder time noticing when we're worshiping the gods of culture. I mean, none of us are walking into a pagan temple. None of us are setting a, a, an idol on our shelf, hopefully. And yet... In our hearts, do we sometimes bow down to the idols of our culture and scarcely even realize it because it's not such a visible thing anymore? It's, it's a little more subtle. Well, in this story that we read today, the idol in question was nothing subtle at all. <laughs> there was nothing subtle at all about this image that was set up before them. I, I tried to picture it this week. And, of course, you can't just, uh, no, one, no one has built a replica that I found online <laughs> that we could look at. But I found out that it's almost the same height as this building on Tower Drive in Monroe. Maybe you've driven by it. Uh, now it's got some like trees growing on the roof that always catches my eye. I'm like, Why, how do they have trees on their roof? Seems like not a good idea, but... You know, it's their building, not mine. So, anyway, if you've seen that building, then it's right about the same exact height as this statue of Nebuchadnezzar would have been. It's a little bit shorter than the Statue of Liberty from bottom to top of her head. But skinnier. It's the same dimensions as the Washington Memorial. Very skinny. Same ratio of height to width, but the Washington Memorial is taller. Now, the Washington Memorial looks very skinny, but if you're right at the foot out of it, it looks a lot wider at the bottom. And apparently these folks, we can assume, would have been gathered around the base of this thing, and it would have been impressive, especially when you plate it in gold and shine it up so that the sunlight beams off of it and blinds you. It'd be pretty impressive. If you can imagine, being amongst the, it wasn't just the common people that he brought that day. I don't think any of them were invited to this particular ceremony. It seemed like he invited all of those people that worked in his government. Whatever capacity, from the highest to the lowest, he brought them in. And it's one thing to be asked to bend a knee of submission to your ruler. It's another thing to be asked to bow down and worship of course, 
in their minds and in the king's mind, why not? They had all kinds of gods. And surely there was no one greater in the world that they knew of than Nebuchadnezzar. So why not add one more god to the mix? Why not worship this all-powerful king as if he were a deity or God himself? I don't know if we can imagine what it would have been like to stand in that crowd. To determine in your spirit, this is not right. I cannot bow before a man or even a figure of a man when I know who the one true God is and know that he is a jealous God and that he told me, you shall have no other gods besides me. The speech is made about what will happen to those who do not bow as if you needed more pressure than the peer pressure around you. And then the drums begin to beat and the stringed instruments begin to play and one by one the people in the crowd around you begin to bow down and to worship this image. And you don't. Your knees tremble and threaten to betray you, but you somehow find the strength to stand. Now, I kind of wonder if they didn't play it a little bit smart and try to camouflage that they weren't bowing down and worshiping because it seemed like they weren't readily noticed. They had to be reported. So I almost kind of wonder if they were like, yeah, <laughs> we're just going to blend in a little bit. Or let's stand behind that really big guy over there. And he's almost as tall as us when he's bowing down, so that'll be good. Uh, I don't know what their plan was. We also, at least I wonder, where was Daniel in all this? Uh, we're not told. It's easy to imagine that in his elevated position that he may have been on the dais next to the king and not been amongst the people being commanded. Uh, it also could be possible that he called in sick that day. It could be possible that he was on an assignment somewhere. There's any number of things that uh, could explain his absence, but the account in scripture is not concerned with Daniel in this story. It's the story of his friends. We have a parallel account of Daniel going through a very similar thing. It's a famous story from, maybe the most famous story from this book of Daniel, of Daniel in the lion's den. It's the same story almost, except Daniel instead of his friends. And we're going to study that in circles after church if you want to stick around. And see the connection with this story and that one. But in this moment, uh, there were some, some people who didn't like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That seized this opportunity to rat them out to the king. There's always people like that. In this case, they were probably uh, locals, Chaldeans, Babylonians, who... This was their empire, and they were probably bitter that these foreigners were elevated to a position equal to or above their own station, looking for a way to get rid of them, and what a great opportunity. And so they, I guess bravely, stand up from their bowing and worshiping, and uh, mosey on over to the king to point out, these three guys, king, are not doing what you said. So, 
Apparently, the king liked those dudes. He calls them forward instead of throwing them directly in and gives them another opportunity. How about it? Will you bow down now? We'll, we'll strike up the band again. We'll give you a whole other chance. This time the pressure is added that everyone's watching you. Everyone's watching you three. And we're going to give you another chance at this. And they essentially say, King, don't bother. Because here's the deal. We're not going to do it. And our God is able to deliver us from your furnace over there. Now the furnace, from what archaeologists and historians tell us, would have probably been a, a domed kiln, like where they, I guess, you know, fire uh, pottery and things like that. Uh, only they like to use it as a means of execution as well. And it would have had an earthen ramp up to it. Obviously you wouldn't want to build that ramp out of uh, wood. And they would have had a door in the bottom where they could shovel in coal and shovel out ash as they heated it up. So when the king announced that he wanted it hotter, you can picture some guys shoveling coal. And that's how they got it hotter. So they said, look, king, our, our God is able to deliver us. I believe we've got the scripture right here. If we're thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And catch this. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What a perspective. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to be faithful. This uh, made the king very happy. Yeah. <laughs> Not really, did it? He tells him to crank it up, and then uh, he throws him in. And then watches in dismay. As nothing happens to him. And then a fourth figure shows up. And he's bewildered. In this account, God showed up in a powerful way and delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This story is about holding to the convictions of your faith, even in the face of death. It's about God being with us when we face trials because of our faithfulness. But it's worth pointing something out. This account is not recorded for us because it is the norm. Because this is what always happens when God's people get thrown in a furnace. Countless thousands of faithful followers have burned in the fire or been devoured in Roman Colosseums or they've been beheaded by jihadists, or gassed by Nazis, or made to disappear by North Koreans. The list could go on. 
These stories, much like the healing miracles of Jesus, are exceptions to the rule recorded that we might be strengthened in our faith and in our hope to remember and know that God does see what's going on, that He does care, and that there is hope, both in this life and the next, that justice will prevail, that what is right will take place. That there is a God who cares and who sees his faithful people even in the midst of their trial. The question for us, as it was the question for them, is will we stand up in a bow-down world? In some ways, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be in their world and in their shoes. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have that difficulty. But we do. But at the same time, I think we know, we can at least imagine, our, our situation is a little different. Like I said, the idols that our culture bows down to are not so carved in stone. Oh, one day they may carve an image of Joe Burrow and set it out in front of Tiger Stadium. But you probably won't ever see anyone bowing down to it. Before the, you, you might. <laughs> but probably none of us will feel tempted to do so. That doesn't mean that people don't worship sports in our culture. In our culture, the worship of these things is, it tends to be more subtle. And so the temptation is more subtle, I think. The temptation is more subtle and it's harder to be aware of what's going on. And yet, it would be good for us to search our hearts, to search our souls, and ask, what is it that I feel pressured to worship? What is it that that I don't even realize I'm worshiping, and yet I am. In our culture, people worship politics, politicians, ideologies. They worship sexuality, for sure. That was a very big part of pagan worship, and that has not disappeared. If anything, I would say it's intensified as technology has made it so possible to explore it so much further. We worship ourselves and our rights and our prerogative to do as we please. We worship money and material things. We worship lifestyle and symbols of influence. Our culture worships recreation and hobbies. We devote all of our time and money and energy into it. We worship power and influence and prestige and we try to seize it for ourselves. We worship, in some sense, I'm not sure what to call it, but media consumption of all kinds. Social media, movies, television. We, it consumes our lives. 
Our culture worships these things. And sometimes, if you stand up and do something different, you worry what will happen to you. Will you become disconnected from other people, from your friends? Will they, uh, maybe, maybe they'll feel guilt about it or feel like you think you're better than them or something like that. Uh, sometimes in our culture, especially in school or in our workplaces and different societal places like that, there's bullying and shaming on social media for sure. Uh, sometimes there's job insecurity that comes along with bucking the trends of not worshiping at the altars of culture. If your boss finds out that you believe this or that you're not willing to do that, it can affect your job. There are lawsuits brought against believers who take a stand in a bow-down world in America. There are investigations that take place of people who stand up in a bow-down world. In other nations, it's a lot more intense. In our nation, perhaps it's becoming more so. So what will we do when the pressure is on? When everyone else around us is bowing down, will we stand up in a bow-down world? Or will we... See, here's the trick. It's a lot easier to rationalize. It's a lot easier to convince ourselves that it's not that big of a deal. Because there's no image standing there. And we're not actually getting on our knees and bowing down. Physically. And so it's a lot easier for us to tell ourselves. I'm not worshipping any kind of idol. Well... For sure, it's hard to sort that out. And we should do so in prayer. Asking the Holy Spirit to show us anything in our hearts, in our lives, where the worship culture of our culture has seeped into our church and into our personal lives. It probably won't be black and white, obvious. So we need God to help us sort it out. What you struggle with may be different from what I struggle with. There are so many gods in our culture. We probably don't all frequent all of their temples. So we each must do soul searching. How will you stand? How do we find the strength to stand? Do you know how I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to stand up while everyone else bowed down? I believe it was because they were already bowing down to someone else. I think that's the key. It's not that they were stronger than everyone else. 
or that they were just rebels without a cause. <laughs> they had a rebellious nature and they're like, no, you can't make me. You know, there's always some people like that, right? That like you say to do it, I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> Peter's in that stage at home right now. We're like, why don't you do this? He's like, no. Nah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> you know, he's always got a different plan. So now I'm like, don't eat your chicken. He's like, watch me. <laughs> but I don't think that's who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. I don't think that's the reason that they were able to stand up while everyone else knelt down. I think it's because they were already bowing down to God. They were already bowing down to the one they knew who was God. And that enabled them to not bow down elsewhere. They were already facing someone else. Not Nebuchadnezzar's image, but the invisible true God. And really, if you think about it, that's the only way to approach this. Is if you approach it any other way, and if you say, look, the gods of this world, they're sorry. They're not real. I'm not going to worship them. You people are losers. And then what happens is you have this self-righteousness that creeps in and this arrogance, and this spirit of condescension as you look down upon the world around you and you say, look, you sorry people don't know any better. Look at you worshiping these things that are filth. But when you're bowing down before the king. There's a humility that comes with that and an acknowledgement that if not for grace, you'd be bowing down to the idols of this world as well. Even more so than you already struggle with it, you would know that it's only by the grace of God that you have recognized the truth and that you're able to bow down to the one true God. And then you can speak with firmness about what you believe without being a jerk about it, like so many religious people have been through the, through the ages. Certainly in Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who were self-righteous. They didn't worship those pagan gods. They didn't do those pagan things. They didn't even walk into the same room with someone who did, if they could help it. And Jesus rebuked that spirit even as Jesus stood up for the truth. Will you stand up? Will I stand up in a bow down world? If we will, here's the incredible promise. If we're willing to say that look, even if God doesn't intervene and fix this situation and fix whatever suffering that I'm facing because of my faithfulness to God, even if He doesn't show up and deliver, and even if He doesn't show up in a big way and, and reward me for my faithfulness in the immediate moment, even so, I will not bow down to the things of this world because I'm already bowing down to the one true King. If we're doing that. I believe we have this promise from this passage of Scripture and the ones like it. 
throughout Scripture and in Daniel's account with the lion's den, I believe we have this promise that he'll be with us. That there will be another in the fire standing with us. Whether the fire consumes us or whether a miracle takes place and we're delivered, he'll be with us. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything about against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Old Nebi never did things halfway. <laughs> How dare you worship that god? If you don't worship this guy, you say anything bad about it. <laughs> Burn you down. <laughs> Ever had a boss like that? But look. Nebuchadnezzar had a wake-up call when he saw that fourth person in the furnace. And when the world sees that our God is with us in the midst of our trials, maybe they'll have a wake-up call as well. This passage reminds me of another passage in the book of Isaiah. I want to share it with you as we wrap this up. Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, and surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Will we stand up in a bow-down world? Determine in your heart, for you and for your house, who or what will you bow down to? Maybe today you would bow down to the one true God and his king, Jesus. Maybe you would give your life to him for the first time. Or maybe not the first time. And yet you see that you've been worshiping so many things and not spending a whole lot of time on your knees before Jesus, the one true king the high king of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your promise to be with us. We confess today that you are the one and only 
true God. Holy Spirit, give us the courage, give us the discernment to know how to stand up in a bow-down world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.